You know, again, we're launching into our Christmas season and the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, our passage today, as we just read it, is not part of the birth Christmas narrative, if you please, but uh, it does remind us of who this babe born in Bethlehem actually is and how he relates to us. And so uh, today is something of a prelude as we get into the Christmas season in the next few weeks that follow as well. You know, it was uh, April 15th, uh, 1912, that the uh, Titanic raised her stern above the frigid waters of the Atlantic Ocean and made a slow descent to the bottom of the sea. Uh, Walter Lord wrote a book about the sinking of the Titanic back in the 1970s, and he made mention that the ship was gone, that when the ship was gone and the lifeboats were floating along the icy waters among crying and drowning swimmers, that there were very few demonstrations of sacrifice. For the most part, it was a story of self-serving cowardice, according to this man. Of the 1,600 people who weren't able to get into a lifeboat, only 13 were picked up by the 18 half-empty lifeboats that hovered nearby. Uh, Let me give you a few examples that he gives as well. He says, in lifeboat number five, when Officer Pittman heard the cries, he turned the boat around and says, we're going to go back. And uh, the people... Uh, said, we're not going to go back. You know, we can't go back. And Pittman gave in. And for the next hour or for the next uh, hour or so, 40 people in lifeboat number five, which had a capacity of 65, heaved gently along the Atlantic as they listened to the cries of swimmers that were not more than 50 or 100 yards away. And then lifeboat number two, Officer Boxall asked, shall we go back? And the survivors in the boat said no. So boat number two, about 60% filled, likewise drifted. Why her people callously listened to what was going on. Uh, you know, one of the, of the 18 lifeboats that uh, did return, one returned to help, but that was only after... Uh, the drowning victims had thinned out. Now, you know, you look at something like that, and I would like to think that we would have been far more heroic and far less selfish had we been there. Uh, But the one thing I've discovered about human nature, including my own, is that you never know. Because concern with our own well-being first resides in all of us. And the drama of the sinking of the Titanic is really a parable of a world gone wrong. Fallen humanity, weighed down under a load of sin, is adrift in an unfriendly sea. And we're ambivalent about helping one another like we should. So if we're going to be rescued, what it means is that we need divine intervention. Now, in this uh, text today, and it's one of the greatest Christological texts in all of the Bible, uh, the Apostle Paul informs us that divine intervention is always going to come to you and to me 
through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. Now, Paul uses five metaphors in this short passage of Scripture to describe both the person and the work of Christ. And so I want to briefly comment on each one of them as we move along this morning. Uh, the first one is simply this, that Jesus, the Jesus born in Bethlehem, is our icon. It says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, the Greek word for icon, uh, our Greek word, I should say, for image is icon. And so when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not talking about a reasonable facsimile. We're not talking about a chip off the old block. Jesus was the perfect, flawless, exact representation of God the Father. If God were a man, we would expect him to be sinless, and Jesus was. If God were a man, we would expect him to exert a more profound influence on human beings, on human personality, than any other being that's ever lived, and Jesus did. So the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the babe born in Bethlehem, is explicitly stated in verse 15. It says, he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was the first created being. It doesn't mean that Jesus is the most important created being. Jesus is not a created being. Uh, John 8, 58, Jesus makes a statement about his eternality. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In other words, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, Jesus already was. John 1.14 says that the eternal Word became flesh, and that Word dwelt among us. So, no matter how far back we go in time, we can never say with the heretical philosopher of Arius that there once was a time when Jesus was not. He always was. He is the firstborn of creation. And the word firstborn has nothing to do really with creation. It has everything to do with supremacy. Psalm 89 says, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So Jesus is the eternal God who had a 33-year hiatus while he was here on earth in order to redeem his people. He became a man, and as the God-man, Jesus came to die for those whom he called. Now the second, let me give you a second uh, thought here about who Jesus is. The Jesus born in Bethlehem is also our creator. It says in verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, Paul is so excited here in his description of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's using a number of rhetorical flourishes, and one of them happens to be a chiasm. 
Now, a chiasm is a literary pattern where two ideas are stated and then they're repeated in reverse order, kind of like an A, B, B, A type pattern. It says, by him, all things were created. And then it says, both in heaven and earth. And then he turns it around, visible earth and then invisible heaven. So what Paul is doing here is being somewhat poetic. Uh, his intention, of course, is not to show off his literary skills, but Paul is simply letting you and me know that in the midst of an uncertain, changing world in which we live, that Christ is the one who's in control of it. And that's a great source of comfort. Uh, in this world, it says we're thrones and dominions and rulers and authority. Now, these forces are beyond our ability to control, but that doesn't mean that we have to live in anxiety. Jesus has the whole world in his hands. You and me, brother. You and me, sister. In his hands. And the same Jesus that was born in a manger that we're going to be looking at also created the world into which he was born. So he alone is able to make sense as to why creation so moves us. You know, why are we so wonderfully mesmerized by creation, by the created order, particularly some parts of this world? We get there, and it's so beautiful, and it absolutely blows our mind. It captures our hearts uh, just by its orderliness and how it just, I can't figure this thing out. Now, even skeptics of the Christian faith realize something of the orderliness of creation. Uh, David Hume was an 18th century uh, Scottish philosopher, and he really wasn't bothered by the low probability of evolution. But he was puzzled by uh, the orderliness of a world that he felt came into being by a random collision of molecules. And Hume reasoned that a consistent pattern of givens seems to have been hardwired into the universe. Water always freezes at the same temperature. Water always boils at the same temperature. A 10-pound rock today will weigh 10 pounds 100 years from now. We can hop on an airplane next week because the same aerodynamics will be there, you know, on the day we left. So science is really based on the uniformity of nature. And that means that the world behaves in a very consistent, very predictable pattern. But the uniformity of nature that we so readily see is inconsistent with the theory of random evolution. So Hume concluded this. He says... The orderly design of the universe doesn't necessarily prove the existence of God, but then he added that the design is so inexplicable that nobody can be sure that God doesn't exist either. Um, and that's why Hume opted for agnosticism rather than atheism. Uh, you know, really, there are only two ways that we can go as a human being. We're either going to be a theist, we believe in God, 
or we're going to be an atheist where we don't believe in God. Now, you and I know a lot of people today that uh, will not say that there is a God. They will not say that there isn't a God. Uh, they call themselves agnostics. And uh, agnosticism, and the next time somebody tells you they're an agnostic, just say, you know, agnosticism is for wimps. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because you and I live each day as if there is a God or as there isn't a God. In other words, we either live each day believing in God, knowing God's exist, or we don't live knowing God's exist, which means that we're an atheist. So the agnostics is just a mad dash in the middle, and when somebody says, I don't know, then in reality, they're just opting for something that doesn't even functionally exist. It's a term we all understand, but functionally, it just doesn't exist. So Jesus is, uh, so anyway, Jesus, uh, let me give you the third point. Jesus, the one born in Bethlehem, is our sustainer. And that simply means that he is the source of the cosmos. Uh, he he's the, keeps the, the world in cohesion. Uh, the world, again, is a cosmos, which means that it's an orderly system versus a chaos, which means disorderly. And so Jesus is the divine blue glue that keeps the world together. Now, uh, he not only keeps the world together... But he also keeps you together. Uh, anybody here ever said, at least once in their life, uh, that I've got to get myself together? Just a quick show of hands. Anybody ever said, I've got to get myself? Some of you said it this morning, probably. <laughs> uh, but some are more together than others. But nobody is all together, completely together. And there was an artist named Albrecht Dreuer who lived from 1471 to 1528. And he had been spiritually shaped by the works of Martin Luther. And uh, he painted a pair of praying hands that uh, actually became quite famous. And there's a story behind those, uh, that painting itself. It, it may have some apocryphal elements to it, but a good part of the story is true. Because uh, Dreuer came from a, a, a large family. He was the third son, or the third child of 18 children. 18 kids in the family. You can imagine what it was like at the dinner table. And they were very, very poor uh, during that time. I don't know exactly where they lived in Germany, but uh, 18 kids, it must have snowed a lot wherever they happened to live. Anyway, uh, Dreuer had a brother. He could have been a friend, it could have been a brother, um, but uh, it was one or the other. But he had, I'll say brother, but uh, he had a brother who was also a gifted artist as well. And the older brother came to him, or the younger brother came to him and says, listen, I will work in the mines while you go to art school, and then we'll trade places. And so that's exactly what happened. 
and Albrecht Dreuer went to art school and he showed himself uh, to be uh, even more equipped uh, early on than his teachers were. And after several years, Drew had made enough money as an artist to go back and uh, send his brother, who had been working in the mines, to art school as well. But the problem is, when he returned home, he discovered that his brother's hands were so damaged from the work in the mines that he permanently lost the kind of dexterity that he needed in order to become an artist. Now, Drewer had seen the hands of his brother folded in prayer probably many times, and he decided he wanted to capture that particular beauty in the painting. And when you, when you look at the painting, at least when I look at the painting itself, you know, I wonder how many times God's grace has been poured out in so many different ways in my life because of the prayers of somebody's hands clasped praying for me. You know, you think about your own life. How many of you are what you are because of someone else praying for you? It's an incredible idea, and sometimes it's just hard to get our hands around. But, uh, you know, the, the idea that somebody is praying for us, and those of you who are parents, those of you who are grandparents, uh, your hands are clasped for people that you love, perhaps people in this room that you love, and they don't even know it. But nevertheless, whatever success, whatever good thing happens to them, in good part comes because of the prayers of God's people. And it's a wonderful thing. Uh, fourth, Jesus, the Jesus born in Bethlehem is our authority. In verse 18, it says, he is the head of the body. And the body of Christ is simply the church. And really, the text is taking kind of a turn here. And Paul moves from acknowledging Christ as the head over the physical creation to also being head over the new creation, which is the church. And the idea that uh, the followers of Christ would actually meet together and, uh, and, and worship one another in, in a body like this is uh, something that Jesus originated. Uh, gifted architects uh, in various parts of the world have been able to design and ultimately the building of some of the greatest cathedrals and marvelous things that you can possibly imagine. Many of them are in Europe, but in other parts, uh, they're in other parts of the world as well, and many of you have witnessed them and you see them. But the church doesn't always or doesn't only meet in a cathedral. In some cases, it meets just in a church. It meets in a normal church or a building or a grass hut in, in parts of Africa or maybe even underground in various parts of Asia where persecution occurs among the, the people of God. But the idea that they would all gather together originated with Jesus. It was his idea, and therefore Jesus is in control of the church. Uh, 
Did you ever wonder why? Just a question here. Did you ever wonder why after 2,000 years the church continues to exist? You know, a lot of people have predicted the doom of the church of Jesus Christ. I mean, it, it doesn't exist because we're well organized. Believe me. I've heard people say, you know, and you've heard people say as well, you know, I really like Jesus, but I'm really not into organized religion. And I say, you know what? You ought to come to harvest <laughs> because, because we're into disorganized religion here. You know, we're trying to figure it out. You know, you know we've got an org chart. Uh, every church has an org chart, but it, the org chart always looks a whole lot better than the haphazard way it functions at times. And that's true of every single church on the face of the earth. And so when you say, you know, Harvest has a lot of foibles a, as a body of Christ, well, of course we do, because that's what the church is. You know, it's a lot of imperfect people coming together uh, sometimes reluctantly, sometimes enthusiastically, but we come together in order to recognize who Jesus is and what he has done for our lives. Uh, and then fifth, uh, the Jesus born in Bethlehem is our death defeater. In verse 18, it says, He is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, he is the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. In other words, you and I are not our own. We belong, body and soul, to our faithful Savior. Now that's uh, countercultural, but that's where we have to take our stand as followers of Christ. You know, Hans Holbein painted a portrait of Christ uh, after the resurrection. And it showed something of the ugliness of death and the price that Jesus was willing to pay. And centuries later, uh, Dostoevsky stared at the painting uh, of one of Hans Holbein's paintings for a number of days. And it moved him incredibly deeply that this son, Jesus Christ, God's son, would actually die for him. And then he makes a very poignant statement in a novel, interestingly enough, called The Idiot. Now, in that novel, it's really about a Russian man who spends a, a, a great amount of time in a mental hospital in the country of Switzerland. And then the man leaves the hospital, goes back to Russia, and falls in love with two women until he realizes that life is a lot safer in a mental hospital in Switzerland. You know, but nevertheless, he, he did that. Now, in his divine comedy, Dante said, above the doors of hell is a single statement. Abandon hope, all who enter here. Now, that sign could have been hung over the tomb of Jesus, you know, at that time. And yet, when all hope was gone, when the women wept, when the two individuals, the followers, were making their way sadly along the road to Emmaus, Christ rose from the dead. 
The tomb, as we sing, could not hold him. The grave could not contain him. And here's the point. Because you have a life, you're also going to get a death. And when you get a death, you'll also have a hope. And what Colossians chapter 1 does for me is this. If you have a hope that's not placed in Jesus Christ, who is our icon, who is our creator, who is our sustainer, who is our final authority, who is our death defeater, then where can hope possibly be? We meet here because of the hope that we have is real. And again, as we move into uh, the Christmas season, Advent season, and all of the wonderful things that await us, uh, wonderful food, wonderful fellowship, uh, great remembrances, great celebration of uh, the Christ that was born in the city of Bethlehem. Uh, And he was born for a purpose, as we all know. It was born in order to, he was born in order that he might die. Uh, He came to secure the redemption of his people. And uh, that's why it's just uh, so meaningful during this time. Uh, Christ is the essence of Christmas. And many of you are going to go to plays, you're going to go to uh, chorales, and and you're going to see tons of music dedicated to Christ in all venues, all kinds of places here in Orange County during this time. And it reminds us again that our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, this is uh, about the birth of our Lord, to be sure. This is the season of his birth. But uh, today we're also going to remember that the birth was designed to be uh, culminated in his substitutionary death for us on the cross. He came specifically for one reason, and that's to redeem his people. And so we have a chance, even during this Christmas season, when we talk about the birth, to also remember what the birth was for. It's so that he, in fact, could die. And so as we take the elements, let's consider thanking God privately for his birth, but thanking him that he came exclusively to this earth to die for you. You're in his family something that can never be taken away from you because of what he's done for you. And it's ought to be the greatest time of thanksgiving that we can ever have as a believer. So I'm going to ask uh, the men to come up who will be serving us today. Uh, I invite you to hold both elements, and then we'll take them together. Uh, Father, we... uh, Pray that, uh, thank you, Lord, that uh, during this time where we uh, focus on your birth, that we can also remember what your birth was uh, all about. 
And uh, we can't begin to comprehend uh, the kind of love that you have for us. Goodness knows, Father, uh, uh, a love and a death for people that don't fully understand the nature of it, but uh, grow. Uh, Father, we just uh, give you the glory. And we pray that uh, during this uh, time of uh, solemnity uh, that uh, we'll realize just how much you do love us. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.